Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. A new blow for Meghan in a U.S. poll. Prince William comes under fire over Princess Diana and has Prince Harry got tired of suing? I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Now, I have spent a lot of time on the show talking about how Meghan and Harry collapsed in the polls after Spare and Netflix. At Newsweek, we charted this through our own polling, which we did with Redfield and Wilton, and we also charted a kind of partial recovery in the spring where um, Harry and Meghan seemed to kind of like both come back up again, having collapsed substantially. And this was driven, I think, largely by Democrats and Gen Z warming to the Sussexes again. Now, that recovery seemed to plateau over the summer, but a new poll has shown that Meghan appears to have dropped in the affections of the American public again. So Harry, Kate and William all seem fairly stable in this new batch of data. It's from YouGov, which is a UK polling agency, and they do these kind of quarterly rounds of polling. So this is a different methodology to usual polls. Usual polls is like a snapshot in time. It's done over a couple of days. They bring in all the data and they just tell you, you know, and over, over these two days, this is how the public felt about this person. This is done over a three-month period, quarter three so that's July, August, September, and Megan dropped seven points. Now, this is, it would be worrying if this was a persistent trend, i.e. if she continued to drop at this rate, then obviously that would be a crisis. But it's also at a kind of level where I could picture her simply recovering and bouncing back from it. I mean, like polls do fluctuate. Megan always comes in below Harry, William and Kate. She has done pretty much from the word go. But I want to kind of spend some time unpacking what I think might be going on here and also some possible paths for Harry and Meghan to potentially address this. So first of all, the poll itself, like I said, YouGov, UK polling agency, it is the 
probably biggest pollster in Britain, I would say. It may have slightly less of a reputation in America, but they do do polling all over the world and um, they are considered reliable. Let's put it that way. Who can ever tell? But they are considered reliable. Now, your average poll, like I said, is just done over a couple of days. So this is trying to give a, a picture of a much broader period of time. It's basically the summer. And this kind of quarterly polling will produce different numbers to your normal poll that just gives like a a snapshot in time because it's a different methodology. That's just how these things work. So Megan was liked by 32% and disliked by 22%. um, And that gave her a net approval rating of plus 10. So over the course of the second quarter, which is April, May, June, she was on plus 17. So it is a significant drop. And if she were to, say, drop again by the same amount in Q4, then that would bring her down to only plus three. But whether or not that happens, totally different question, which is what I'm going to look at in a second. So straight off the bat, I don't actually think Megan needs to panic here. I don't think she actually did anything particularly wrong over the summer. In fact, she didn't actually do very much of anything at all, publicly, that is, Um, apart from she went to a Beyonce gig with Harry and her mother, Doria Ragland, um, and then she joined Prince Harry at the Invictus Games in Dusseldorf in Germany in September. So that was like midway through September, right at the kind of end of the period that YouGov were looking at here. Um, So, you know, why shouldn't she go out and have some fun? And if she hadn't gone with Harry to Invictus, that would have been hugely frowned upon. So I don't personally think that either of those two events can really be a driving force behind this change. Um, There is another possible explanation, though, which is that the summer was the period when these unfounded divorce rumours sprung up and really started churning away. And um, it started with actually in the spring with like uh, kind of more informal stories that I guess were they weren't talking about a divorce. They were kind of just saying that Harry and Meghan were on different career paths. So back then, some of the coverage was a bit more sort of defensible because they kind of were professionally on different career paths in the sense that Harry was busy with his UK court cases. He had the Invictus Games to prepare for in the fall. And Meghan, um, after the collapse of their Spotify deal, she was kind of left with less that she was actively working on. And so she signed with this talent agency, WME. And that kind of did create a picture of Meghan kind of forward-looking, wanting to build with new projects, while Harry was kind of rooted in these things that had been built in the past but that is professional and obviously the rumor mill went substantially beyond the professional to start speculating wildly about the personal the private about their relationship and you know it got as far as discussion of a supposed secret 80 million dollar divorce filing which appears to be complete fantasy Um, Meghan and Harry ultimately blew all of that speculation out of the water at the Invictus Games and they did that by kind of putting on a very touchy-feely, loved-up performance. Uh, I say performance not cynically, I'm sure you know it was entirely authentic, I just mean that people got a chance to see them interacting with each other. They are kind of always very PDA, they're always very touchy-feely with each other and they always kind of look very loved up in public. So it's very hard, I'm sure, to pull that off if you secretly hate each other. Um, That was towards the very end of YouGov's kind of survey period though so very you know that was mid-September so you'd only have a couple of weeks after that point when 
the kind of consequence of their appearance at the Invictus Games would have shown itself in the survey. You know, most of those surveys that were done would have been done before the Invictus Games happened. Um, and so if it was all the divorce rumours and divorce gossip, and, you know, honestly, reading the runes of polling data can be a complete nightmare. It, you know, they, they can never in those surveys, in those polls, actually ask people why they think the things they think. In order to ask why, you have to do focus groups, but you can only focus group a much smaller cross-section of society. You can't focus group 1,500 people or 2,000 people. Um, but if it is related to the divorce gossip, then that, for me, is a reason why Megan shouldn't worry, because clearly they don't appear to be divorcing. And so the poll should then spring back as it becomes clear that it was completely unfounded. Um, there are, though, a couple of things that I'd been thinking about anyway, which I think are just, you know, generally good pieces of advice. So, firstly, I watched the Beckham Netflix documentary recently, which was, I thought, a lot of fun. And um, I actually mainly watched it because I saw this clip that went around social media, it went around Twitter, or X as we call it now, and TikTok and other places. And it was, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it was David Beckham sticking his head around the door to intrude on an interview that Victoria Beckham was doing. So, first of all, um, for anyone who's not familiar with them, I suppose it's worth saying that Posh and Bex were actually showbiz royalty themselves in Britain, like incredibly famous. They were the most famous celebrity couple when I was growing up and um, they kind of fused, you know, kind of male sports fans because Beckham was obviously like an England star. Like he was the guy who England football fans look to to pull off the incredible and, you know, win get England through to the next round in whatever tournament. Um, so, you know, he brought fashion and then Victoria, because she was a Spice Girl, she was Posh Spice, she brought music and uh, also she brought fashion because she created a fashion line. So hugely, hugely famous in Britain. But this clip that kind of reeled me in showed Victoria saying she was working class. And then David Becker kind of pops his head around the door, seemingly completely unannounced and uninvited, and just tells her, be honest. And the reason he says that is because he knows and wants her to say that her dad drove her to school in a Rolls Royce, which obviously is like a cultural signifier of wealth and poshness, basically. Like, Rolls-Royce was the car back in those days. It was the 1980s, and it was the car that you wanted to have if you wanted to be hugely rich and flashy with your money. Um, and it was, I thought it was hilarious, and it actually made me like both of them more, like because it kind of felt real and it felt relatable. Because all couples argue about stuff, and I feel like all couples, you know, will be in a situation where somebody is telling a story and you're sat there and you think they're telling it wrong and you just want to pipe up and say so and tell them to tell it the way it really happened. And so I think it's hugely relatable. But I actually think there's more to it than that. There's more to why I think that this could actually show Harry and Meghan something that they can do differently and something that they could potentially do better. So it made me think that... Harry and Meghan's presentation of their relationship is just kind of slightly too fairy tale for the modern era. And I don't mean 
that it's too fairy tale for any era. Like we kind of love royal fairy tales, right? Like royal watching, royal reporting is built on fairy tales. And at other points in the timeline, their whole loved up thing like was absolutely perfect for the moment. And, you know, that's fine. But the world changes and audiences, you know, they change too. And right now people don't like the rich because they're struggling to pay their bills and there's soaring inflation. This is, you know, it's the era of succession and every single character in that show, pretty much without exception, is a villain. Like, they're all villains. And it's one of the greatest shows ever made. Like, it's up there for me with Breaking Bad and The Wire and some of the best shows ever made. And this is the era where, you know, rich people are the bad guys. Like, look what happened to Oprah and The Rock, who got absolutely, to use an English expression, absolutely taken to the cleaners for setting up a fund to help um, people affected by wildfires in Maui. It's the era of White Lotus. This is an era where viewers kind of want to see rich people behaving badly badly and being punished for it or if they're not punished for it then we should feel a sense of injustice at that fact and so in harry and megan's documentary it's not that harry and megan should have cast themselves as the villains if anything i think it's more just actually that they accidentally did cast themselves as the villains without even really realizing it and the beckham's didn't necessarily cast themselves as the villains either but they did talk about the bad as well as the good including, you know, they actually discussed um, the allegation that David cheated on Victoria with a PA, Rebecca Luz. And that was like, you know, when I was sitting down to watch that with my wife, that was one of the things we set out wondering, are they going to talk about it? Will they discuss Rebecca Luz? And they did. And they didn't go into a huge amount of detail about the facts, but they did acknowledge that they were basically against each other at the time, in Victoria's words. They talked about their difficult emotions to each other. And that is so different to Harry and Meghan's Netflix documentary in December, which was called Harry and Meghan. Now, um, some, I'm sure, will be sitting here listening to this podcast thinking, yes, but you have to have had those problems in order to be able to show that conflict. So here's what I would love to see Harry and Meghan discuss and be open about. So In the Oprah Winfrey interview in March 2021, Meghan said famously that an unnamed royal family member had expressed concerns and conversations about how dark her unborn child's skin might be. And um, she wouldn't name that person, she said, because that would be very damaging to them. But the concern was around whether the child might be too dark. Um, At the time, Meghan was by herself, but Oprah asked Harry when he joined the interview later, and Harry said that was a conversation he would never share. So that is really interesting to me, because Meghan did share it. So how did Harry feel in that moment? Did he know that she was planning to drop this bombshell about a conversation he didn't want to share? Did he mind that she had shared it? If they spoke about it in advance and discussed that she would share it, then in what sense, like, what does Harry mean when he says that conversation I will never share? Like, he, you know, if he kind of knows that Megan's sharing it, then like that's splitting hairs. Like it is him sharing it. If she's sharing it with his consent, then he's sharing it. So if that conversation he will never share means that he wants it kept private, then she's just absolutely kind of released it to a global audience of millions. Like, how did that make him feel? And then 
There was kind of radio silence from them about this for months, while all around the world people had major high-profile debates about racism in the royal family, WhatsApp groups popping off, people's phones going, pinging, left, right and centre, arguments among family members, people going on TV, some people saying it was racism, some people saying it was fine, you know, absolute carnage. And in December, Meghan told their Netflix show that she thought the big takeaway would be her discussion of mental health, which was, in her words, entirely eclipsed by the conversation on race. So that in itself was bizarre to me because, I mean, it just seems so intuitively obvious that race would be the big takeaway. And a month later, in January 2023, Harry appeared to at least partially retract the force of the allegation. Um, He said they never intended to accuse the royals of racism, rather unconscious bias. And um, now some people say that unconscious bias is simply a type of racism, but Harry did say not racism. Um, And he said most mixed race couples will have, you know, the families will have conversations about skin tone and will be curious about it. He kind of highlighted that the specific word that triggered the backlash about racism was concern. So he didn't explicitly retract that word concern, but he at the very least introduced this this idea that the original comments may have been curiosity rather than kind of like a desire to not have a dark skinned family member, which is what came across from the Oprah interview. But he blamed the media. He said Meghan never said his family were racist. She also, though, didn't say that they that it was unconscious bias. She kind of didn't tell us which path we should go down. She just left it to viewers to make their own minds up. And obviously interpreting it as an allegation of racism felt like taking her disclosure seriously, whereas interpreting it as unconscious bias would have felt like it was making excuses for the monarchy and basically being very dismissive and undermining of what Meghan had shared. So millions of people watching this with their own eyes know whether they organically thought it was racism or whether they were kind of like, you know, influenced by the media or what. But like, how does Harry really, truly, honestly feel about the fact Meghan dropped this bombshell in the way she did, creating what he described as a hunt for the royal racist when he was sat there seemingly of the view that there was no racism in the royal family? You know, was he genuinely fine with all this? Did he really honestly only blame the media uh, You know, when this was a conversation that supposedly he never wanted to share? Like, surely they must have had some discussion about it. And if he's having to basically retract it in part at least a year and a half later, you would think that he might have some reservations. But he just doesn't seem to be capable of acknowledging any difficult emotions or negative emotions towards Meghan. Um, You might think that that's loyalty, but then I would argue that actually this might be having like a negative effect on them because it's just not necessarily believable to audiences, at which point loyalty can become counterproductive. So, you know, how did Meghan feel about Harry not wanting to tell that story? You know, she may have felt that she and her unborn child were the victims of like I'm going to try to pick my words carefully, knowing what Harry went on to say, but at the very least, racial discrimination, because she tied that conversation about skin tone to a decision that was being discussed, but never enacted to change the rules so that 
um, Archie and Lily would not be prince and princess. So this ne- it never actually kind of happened, but she was saying there were discussions about the possibility of denying them prince and princess titles, which she tied to the colour of their skin, which, you know, in any employment situation, that's racial discrimination. So how did she feel about Harry then kind of partially retracting the force of what she'd said in January 2023? Like, was she fine about all that? Harry said, you know, that it was both of their perspectives that it was unconscious bias but you know Megan did kind of partially discuss this in the Netflix documentary and didn't say that using her own words like what does she feel emotionally about the whole trajectory of this kind of allegation and how it rose and then fell then there's Harry's book more generally Spare came out in January and it had a lot of stuff in it about Harry's Frost Britain private parts and America, they, they tanked in US opinion polls. Like, how does Megan feel about that? It was Harry's book. Like, it must have been hugely, hugely frustrating to her to watch her own country where she was born kind of turn against her a little bit because of her husband's book. Like, I mean, if I did something like that, my wife would kill me. Uh, with, the, with the Beckhams, for all of their past tensions and conflicts, and clearly there are some, but they did come across as though they have actually, like, ultimately in the end found peace within their relationship. And, you know, whether that's the rea- reality or not, it might not be. Uh, if you show the conflict, though, and you show you have nothing to hide then you uh, you kind of present yourself as comfortable. And if you look comfortable with each other, then you look like you're in a healthy, happy, positive, great relationship. And there's a saying in fiction writing, which I think is also very true in PR, which is show, don't tell. And people hate being told what to think. Um, Harry has this misconception, or at least I would argue it's a misconception that many people suffer from, which is that basically, you know, a lot of people think that the media brainwashes people. And I actually think it's a big subject to go into here, but I actually think there's a significant amount of empirical evidence and survey data which shows that that isn't true. In fact, people believe what they think they've seen for themselves with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. And so the Beckhams showed viewers that they're in a comfortable place right now um, because they had their argument about class in front of the camera and they were fine with that. And no doubt they must have had some sign off on what got broadcast, but they left that clip in and they talked about the affair allegations. And sure, they didn't go into the actual meat of whether or not it really happened, but they discussed it and that, that you know, made it into the final cut. They must have had sign off, but they left that in. Meanwhile, is Harry and Meghan's picture-perfect impression of their own relationship believable enough? I'm not saying it's unbelievable in general. I'm saying, is it believable enough? Like, clearly, they do not appear to be secretly divorcing. But they must argue, like all couples argue, me and my wife argue, and they've given us absolutely no idea what they argue about. Like, you could argue that's because they're private people who don't want to share, but they've also shared so much. Like, they've let the cameras in so much. Their children's lives are all there on the screen. Um, Harry talking in detail about getting frostbite on his royal todger, which, you know, I (laughs) discussed that twice in this episode alone, and yet I still don't think I found the right way to say that. And it's been 10 months since this kind of, you know, cringe bomb dropped. I still haven't worked out the right way to put it. It's that private. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if they're going to if they're going to show all that stuff and share all of that stuff, then why can't we get some insight into the things that they argue about? And I'm not saying that because I have a personal demand for it or that I want, the, you know, I don't think that they have the right to privacy. I'm just saying that the version of their relationship that they're presenting 
might leave some viewers feeling like they're hiding something. Um, and actually, you know, letting people's imaginations run wild might actually do more damage than just simply sharing the reality, which, you know, don't, you can't hide from the truth, right? Like the truth is the truth. There's no point hiding from it. So beyond the divorce rumors, TikTok and YouTube and social media is absolutely awash with like these little videos um, that people make, you know, kind of ordinary anti-fans, I guess, make um, speculating about all kinds of things. You know, Megan secretly controls Harry. Harry's a prisoner. Megan always pushes in front of him. All of this kind of stuff. And I could easily ignore all of this stuff, but I would only say this, right? It is getting audience like people tune in for the body language conspiracies like i wouldn't i'm not telling them they should but they absolutely do so why do body language experts exist like what is that whole subculture about why is this a thing it's for me i think people like body language analysis because they believe that the version of celebrities and politicians that we see on our screens isn't real and can't be trusted that it's all a kind of stage managed projection And up to a point, you know, you can say, well, these are all conspiracy theorists. But on the other hand, who can blame them when Jada Pinkett Smith pops up and says she had a real life secret separation from Will Smith? It's near impossible to prove that you haven't secretly separated, short of basically making out in public. And Harry and Meghan have all but done that. I mean... They've been so cozy with each other publicly that, they, you know, make like literally just making out is the only thing left that they haven't done. Um, yet the body language experts continue to ply their trade. So Harry and Meghan are obviously never going to get rid of the conspiracy theories altogether. But I do kind of wonder whether maybe it might be time to embrace the fact that neither Harry nor Meghan is perfect. And in fact, no couple is perfect. You know, William and Kate aren't perfect either. They you know, have their arguments too. All couples argue. So if you show a bit more of the bad, then people might actually wind up more likely to believe the good, not least of all, because they all have their own imperfect relationships. And it's kind of aggressively perfect to present this image of a couple who never disagree. If you're sitting there at home and you're watching and you're in a relationship that you believe in and that you fought for, but is imperfect and you have your arguments and you see this couple who are basically like saying that they have only ever been madly in love with each other from the first moment to the last and you kind of feel like from your own life experience, you don't buy it, then I can kind of see why that person might want to pour over in microscopic detail these kind of body language videos that zoom in on like one tiny gesture at an event because people don't want to be told that the rich are perfect, that the rich are better than them. So who knows where Harry and Meghan's story will go from here? Will they be in front of camera again or will everything else they do be behind the scenes? But if they do wind up back in front of camera selling their love story again, then I want to see the bad as well as the good. Or as David Beckham puts it, be honest. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, a playwright has a word or two to say to Prince William. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Princess Diana's story appears to be 
almost as powerful in 2023 as it was in the mid-1990s when she did a famous interview with the BBC on a show called Panorama in which she said that there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Now, that interview has been remade in The Crown and it will be remade in a new stage play by Jonathan Maitland, which debuts in London this month. There's only one slight problem which is that Prince William in 2021 said the interview should never be broadcast again, owing to what he saw as the manipulative and deceitful way in which the interview was obtained by Martin Bashir, who was an investigative journalist at the BBC at the time. And it was deceitful. Martin Bashir fabricated financial records to make Diana believe that her staff were sending stories to the media and potentially even to the security services. So, obviously, big allegations. They were investigated by uh, a man called Lord Dyson, who found, indeed, that there was manipulation. But does all that mean that Diana's words should never be broadcast again? Well, here's what Maitland had to say to the Daily Mail, and I will discuss William's specific remarks in a moment too, but for now, here is Maitland. It's ironic that the eldest son she brought up to have the courage to speak out has silenced his own mother, who had the courage to speak out. The BBC immediately agreed to this, that is to say Prince William's request, um, and so the interview is now, in effect, banned. Anyone who uses chunks of it for a documentary film or indeed play runs the risk of being sued for breach of copyright. Interestingly, Harry and Meghan did actually reuse clips of this interview in their documentary, and there were stories in the British media at the time saying that William was furious. There does appear to have been nothing that he could do, however... Um, anyway needless to say here's what William had to say Um, this was back in I think it was May 2021 after the Dyson report came out the interview was a major contribution to making my parents relationship worse and has since hurt countless others it brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her It is my firm view that this Panorama programme holds no legitimacy and should never be aired again. It effectively establishes a false narrative which, for over a quarter of a century, has been commercialised by the BBC and others. So, for me, there's just one slight issue with all of this, which is that before Martin Bashir was ever on the scene, in terms of Diana anyway, obviously he had a career before, but before he was ever on the scene with Diana, uh, she recorded her own story in her own words on cassette tapes for her secret biographer, Andrew Morton. And he published her story in 1992, three years before the Bashir interview in 1995. Morton, for what it's worth, agrees with Maitland that Princess Prince William sorry, was silencing Diana. Um, And the version of the story that Diana gave Morton was, for the most part, pretty similar to Panorama, except that I would argue it went a substantial amount further. Now, obviously, she had not intended in that moment that these tapes be broadcast or that every single thing she put in there would necessarily wind up in print, certainly not attributed to her. Her her role in cooperating with this book was kept secret until after her death. But going back to the interview, the bit that everyone remembers... You know, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. That is unambiguously true in the sense that Charles did have a very real affair with Camilla. Um, William's words, to me, were always very puzzling and very high risk because of just how ferociously popular Diana still is in both Britain and America, but also the kind of most extraordinary, most draw-dropping allegations Diana had to make 
were recorded in private before the Bashir interview ever happened. And I'm not actually just talking about the Morton tapes now. I'm talking about another set of secret tapes that she made with her speech coach, Peter Settlin, in the months leading up to this Panorama show. Could even have been more than the months, in all honesty. I, I seem to remember it was at kind of maybe around a year earlier. And that includes, on those tapes, they're called the Peter Settlin tapes, because that was the name of her speech coach, um, it includes the contention that um, Prince Philip gave Charles permission to go back to Camilla after five years, at the point that Charles agreed to marry Diana. And, you know, Charles, according to Diana, said that he refused to be the only Prince of Wales in history never to have a mistress. And that is the thin edge of the wedge. It got substantially more salacious than that. Um, but, you know, those tapes she made with Peter Settlin demonstrate another point that Maitland alluded to, which is that, you know, he said Diana knew what she was doing. And the very fact that she hired this speech coach months or even more than that before um, agreeing to do the interview with Bashir shows she wanted to tell her story and would always have told her story. Otherwise, she wouldn't have hired a speech coach to tell her how to do it properly, how to do it well how to come across well in the interview that she had, you know, she wouldn't agree to with Bashir for, for a long time after afterwards. Um, so Bashir was simply fighting to be the person she picked to tell her story to. Um, but the version of the story she ultimately gave to Bashir in the BBC Panorama show was positively vanilla compared to the version she was telling privately. And she also said all of this to Sir Max Hastings, who was um, editor of the Daily Telegraph at the time, and he simply decided not to print it because uh, I think perhaps out of, you know, one might think out of loyalty to the Crown, or maybe he was concerned for Diana's mental health. Um, but either way, you know, she was trying to tell this story. Um William is, of course, perfectly entitled to hold the views he holds, and I would not dream if in a million years you know, of arguing with him over his mother's mental health. Um, but I do think that some realism and pragmatism is needed here in relation to a major high-profile public interview about the monarchy, which is part of the British state, let's, let us not forget. And I used to get taught in history that all sources are useful, even unreliable ones. You know, even if somebody is just actually outright lying, that source still tells you what lie that person wanted to tell. So ultimately, understanding the process through which Diana went from being a future queen to a royal outcast is in the public interest, because as her former private secretary, Patrick Jepson, used to say, you know, marriages are to royalty what elections are to democracy. It is through marriage divorce, childbirth, these very private things, that is the way that we get new royal family members who represent the British state and who are paid public money to do their jobs. So, with all of that in mind, where does William want people to turn to in understanding this story? You know, if he wants to shoot down the Morton, the, the um, Panorama interviewed, how does he then shoot down the Morton tapes? You know, if you look away from Panorama, fine, but you're just going to look to Morton or you're going to look to Peter Settlin and the speech coaching tapes. You know, it's an absolute hiding to nowhere for him. And ultimately, Diana's narrative lives on in fiction as well as in the actual interview itself. So 
for me, I kind of think that this ultimately, and we're going, we are going back to 2021 in fairness when William actually made his remarks. But for me, that was a misstep by William and was actually hugely unrealistic. Um, but on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston, and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, the Earthshot Prize is hours away. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Prince Harry has gone 12 months since launching his most recent lawsuit and to an ordinary person that would not especially be a milestone. But we are talking here about one of the most litigious people on planet Earth. So does this mean he will no longer have his solicitors on speed dial? Well, life being what it is, a new lawsuit will probably be announced the minute this podcast comes out, just to show me for doing this segment in the first place. And I should say that there has been another time in the last four years where Harry went on a similar litigation drought. Um, That was like probably a little bit more than a year, I think, and was all the way back in 2021. In fact, he went the whole of 2021 without launching any new lawsuits. He's launched about 10 in total since September 2019. And, you know, after the after launching none in 2021, he then came back with a vengeance in 2022 and sued the British government twice and Associated Newspapers, which is the publisher of the Mail and its sister titles. He sued them twice, too, once for libel and once for historic allegations of phone hacking. And also, it's very important to point out, he's been very busy with his existing lawsuits in 2023. So that might be part of it, too. Um, but 2021 was the year of the Oprah interview, and 2023 has also been the year of Spare and its aftermath. So maybe he kind of retreats into himself a little after major, major projects launch. His last case was actually um, October 2022. That was the historic phone hacking allegations against the mail. I did also wonder whether there might be another factor, which is that the US media has been more of a problem for the Sussexes in 2023, and it is much, much harder to sue in America. It's not impossible, but there are way fewer tools in the legal toolbox. So for for a start, uh, the year began with speculation about whether they would sue South Park. People might remember South Park did this episode called the Worldwide Privacy Tour, which was kind of mocking the big publicity drive Harry and Meghan did in December and January, which was around not a lot of it honestly was harry's book spare you know i I think they were kind of having a dig at the netflix documentary as well um that you know suing south park realistically would have been a major pr disaster um they had you know they would have had no real prospects of winning they would have looked like they couldn't take a joke um it would have just backfired massively 
But their other big media dispute of the year came in May when they were followed by the paparazzi in New York. Now, they came out swinging publicly. They said it was a near-catastrophic two-hour car chase. And um, I was told at the time that they'd handed their footage of the incident to the NYPD. The NYPD, however, was seemingly not moved to press charges. So there was, you know, that's not launching a lawsuit, but there was some desire or... Uh, attempt to kind of get the NYPD to be more involved um, in relation to the photographers. Uh, Also, interestingly, though, British newspapers ran the pictures that the paparazzi got and then pulled them after the Sussexes said they had been followed, which they had to do under the rules of Britain's press regulator, Ipso. Um, But TMZ published video in America and Ipso doesn't exist in America, and they kept their video footage online. So there you have like a really concrete example of where Harry would have had, had, the, had any of those British newspapers refused to back down, he could have gone to Ipso at the very least, potentially also his legal team. Um, and, uh, you know, he, it might even have been some grounds to sue at the High Court in London, but certainly he could have issued a complaint to Ipso and it would have been an open and shut case in his favour. So, again, it was the US media who posed the problem, and there was nothing really that the Sussexes could do about it under US law. Now, any other time, or the one other time, I mean, that they, uh, that they encountered this issue was, interestingly, back in 2021, the other time period when they had this, this lawsuit dry spell. And what happened was, page six of the New York Post ran pictures of Megan picking up Archie from his first day of preschool. Harry was very upset about it. He went on a podcast called The Armchair Expert and complained about it. And he said, you know, people are punishing children for the success of their parents. But, you know, there was nothing he could do. Uh, Page six ran the pictures. In Britain, he would have had recourse to European privacy law, which was, you know, the uh, European Convention on Human Rights was brought into British law under the Human Rights Act in 1997. And he would have been able to launch a suit for privacy. Um, under EU law in particular, like the privacy rights of children are taken very seriously. And the test case would be, you know, Paul Weller successfully sued the male under similar circumstances when a paparazzo had got pictures of him out with his family. The male ran the images without blurring the child's face and he actually won in court. So very clear, open and shut comparison there. You know, Harry would have won that case in Britain. In America, those laws don't exist. In America, there is no right to privacy if you are in a public place. Those two concepts are seen as being axiomatically, you know, contradictory. So this is just, for me, it's just something to think about in terms of the wider debate about Harry, Meghan and the media. Um, Some concrete examples of situations where Harry would have had a greater capacity to take legal action had it been a, a UK outlet rather than an American outlet. And on that note, that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thank you for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.